Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You're about to hear one of the highlight sessions of our 2019 event, which featured 180 storytellers from 30 countries and was explored through our theme of karma. So please settle in and let the magic of our 16th year continue. I think everyone's too hot to move, so that's fine. We'll just leave it open. Welcome everyone to this session on multilingual wordsmiths. While we're waiting for Rodan to join us, I'm just going to read an introduction for the session. Crafting the perfect sentence in one's mother tongue is hard enough without the complications that working in a second language brings. But that hasn't stopped this panel. Not content to create in just one language, they share accounts of their personal experiences, of the joys and frustrations of becoming multilingual wordsmiths. And I think we'll start. Today, we've got a surprise guest, uh, Janie Marina Lau, to my right, is a multidisciplinary writer and artist. Her debut novel, which is for sale here today, uh, Pink Mountain on Locust Island won the 2018 Melbourne Prize for Literature's Readings Residency Award. It was shortlisted for the 2019 Stella Prize and the 2019 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and the Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction and was longlisted for the ALS Gold Medal. Basically, that means... It was really successful. And if there aren't Australians here, if there are Australians here, you would have already heard of Jamie. Um, she published at 21, 22, 21, and just blew Australian readers away with her experimental fiction that explores identity and uh, urban cultural landscape of Australia being a migrant, being from a migratory family. So please welcome Jamie. Uh, to my immediate right is Rodan Al-Galidi. Rodan is a poet and a writer. Um, he was born in Iraq and trained as a civil engineer. He's lived in the Netherlands since 1998. And as an undocumented asylum seeker, he did not have the right to attend language classes, and so he taught himself to read and write in Dutch. His novel, The Autist and the Carrier Pigeon, won the European Union Prize for Literature in 2011, the same year that he failed his Dutch citizenship, citizenship course, which is an incredible achievement. How I Found the Talent for Living is already a bestseller in the Netherlands, and uh, he has a brand new book that's coming out in English worldwide, which is here for, there's none for sale because he's been giving them away. <laughs> but you can buy it on Amazon or your local indie bookseller. It's called Two Blankets, Three Sheets, but you can Google all these writers. And finally, we have Yoga Gelao Waldelis. He's a writer, a researcher, and a poet from the holy town of Lilabella, Ethiopia. He currently lives in Perth, Western Australia, where he's a lecturer at the Centre for Human Rights Education at Curtin University. And his passion lies in education, 
traditional Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous art and language diversity. And his poetry was compiled and published in a book titled The Cry of the Mountains, which you have for sale. <laughs> Not now. But again, please, please, uh, please Google everyone and please welcome my two other guests. We're just going to have a relaxed discussion because Rodan and I have just come from a session. You guys have been busy and come from sessions as well. And we're all sweltering. So, yes, we're all tired. It's the end. So we're just going to have a super relaxed conversation. We're going to do some readings. All my, my panelists are going to do some readings, my guests. And then I think we'll just open up for early questions and, and just have a nice relaxing time. So first I want to ask I want to ask you something yoga and maybe ask you to read as well. I wanted to ask you about whether you felt that there was a requirement to write in the English language for writers coming from the continent of Africa. And I mentioned a quote to you recently um, by uh, Nyu Tiongo, the Kenyan writer. He said, um, the bullet was the means of the physical subjugation and language was the means of the physical subjugation, of the spiritual subju subjugation, sorry. I wondered if you could talk about those two topics and expand on it. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's a very profound uh, quote from Ngungi Otiongo. Uh, um, and um, it speaks to the experience of a lot of African writers, but not just African writers, uh, the experience of uh, the African worldview or the African experience in general. Uh, in my work, uh, and also through my writing, I try to explore the, uh, the notion of epistemic violence, the ways in which uh, dominant narratives and languages uh, could uh, prohibit or become violent to worldly views and experiences that are not uh, represented by the English language, that are outside the West, like Africa in particular. So when I start to write um, in English, uh, it is with a very keen and a very um, clear understanding of the limitation of trying to represent Africa's experiences through a non-African and also an imperial language, which is English. Uh, I, I think that is very uh, important because the African continent uh, has been, we know historically, through colonialism, has been subjugated uh, by um, colonial uh, occupation. But the epistemic colonization, which means the imposition of English as uh, the only way to literature, to advancement, uh, the view that every world view, the economic world, the social, the cultural world, has to be translated and make sense to people who speak a non-African language, especially in the West or in English. Uh, these are uh, challenges uh, that are still going on in Africa. Uh, growing up in Ethiopia, I, I have had a language uh, that gave me the ability to write poems, to write uh, uh, short stories, to perform in front of thousands of people, but when it comes to going to school, when it comes to coming to a stage like this, uh, I found out that my language does not have an audience. My language does not have a place where uh, people could 
relate to and learn something out of it. That also involves the requirement for me to translate, to change uh, what I know, what I have experienced into what I imagine is sensible in a culture and a language that, is not, that was not mine. So that process of uh, translating and trying to represent a lived experience into a world that views this experience in a particular lens is quite problematic. That's why I often look at my writing, not just a genuine African writing, but a reflection of someone from Africa who has appropriated the English language and some other epistemic properties within the West and tries to reflect uh, on what it means to live in the West while uh, one has come from the experience that is non-Western. So I think uh, uh, the quote that you mentioned is quite important because uh, we often forget that, well, Africa has been colonized in the past, but it is now free. It's all their fault, but that is not true. Uh, Africa was and has been colonized for hundreds and hundreds of years. Colonialism just ended about 50 years ago. Even after that, the education system in Africa, literature in Africa, indigenous knowledges in Africa have to be translated and make sense uh, in, into English or make sense to the English audience in order for them to be appreciated and valued. So we live in a world of epistemic oppression which the English language contributes significantly. Sometimes we talk about the days of languages, although languages die by themselves. But languages are murdered, are killed, by, uh, the, by, because people who have the experience of living life without using, a non, uh, uh, without using the English language do not have the means to talk about, to narrate those experiences in the world today. Uh, so my writing reflects a kind of a paradox. On the one hand, I want to talk and write about African experience, but on the other hand, I know the limitation of trying to write about the experience to a people who do not know that experience, who only have some linguistic and epistemic lenses to simply feel and understand what it means to live in the other world. So I think my, my, my writing in, Af in, in, in English language uh, emerges from also my problem with the language itself as an imperial language that hardly allows African experiences to be expressed and written on. Yoga, do you feel that you can properly, in your writing using English, that you can properly capture the essence of, of what your poetry is trying to say, of your, in translation, does it capture the essence or how far does it go and what are the limitations? Yeah, uh, I think the, 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 the very genuine answer is really, it, it, it's very hard. Some, some, some of Africa's experiences, some Africans, Africans are not just, cannot be put in one box. Uh, some Africans, especially those who are living in cities, who have uh, a, a class that you can say are kind of privileged Africans, uh, can really relate very well to what I say and write. But other Africans who are not part of that system, whose uh, indigenous languages cannot become part of the education system could be left out. So it all depends on where we stand, where we locate ourselves when we write, when we write about that experience. And in my writing uh, and reflections, I, I consider three locations as a writer. I consider three locations in trying to understand where I come from when I'm writing on a subject. The first place or the first location is what I call a social location, a cultural location, where I come, 
from matters in how I write. Where I, as, as a person coming from Ethiopia, growing up in a rural Ethiopia, uh, working in the farm, understanding the lives, challenges, and experience of the farmers, is very important for me. Uh, so that social location is important in informing what I write and think about that subject. But there is also another location that I consider, which I call epistemic location. What I have understood about the world, what stories and narratives I have developed through my experience, through my reading and research about uh, the world. So epistemic location is you know, a, a perspective from where I write on a particular topic of Ethiopia. And my epistemic location and my social location may contradict, may not come from the same place. I, come from, I may come from a poor family, but epistemically, the way I think may be entirely different from the perspective of those people from where I come. It could be a kind of imperialistic, for example, perspective that are manifested in my writing. But there is also another third position or location which I consider uh, to be uh, um, a power location. Where am I located in the world? of the hierarchy of power. The fact that I am teaching in a university, the fact that I have a responsibility to publish, the fact that I can be invited to panels and seminars, th th this power location that I have also uh, makes me select certain topics. Uh, especially, for example, when I publish in English. Partly it's not just to represent the African or Ethiopian experience, it's also to meet my requirement as a lecturer so that I publish and be counted as someone who, has, who is able to produce intellectual outputs. So, you know, by considering these three locations and thinking on what is required to be translated, I often struggle to say that I, I, I really genuinely translate what exists in the other countries. So there are so many things that cannot be translated. I give you one example and I finish with that. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in the farm in rural Ethiopia. 80% of the population in Ethiopia are smallholder farmers. It is very hard to bring the experience of those people because you no longer, in the West at least, have the experience of that type of farmers where you know, the farmer would go out to the land, have a special relationship with the land, with the rain, with the seed, uh, has to have, perform a certain prayer and ritual, and has a certain singing and performances that it, it, it does when it harvests, when they come together in a, in a community and so on. That world, it's very hard to represent it and write about it to an audience who doesn't know anyone who was, who was a farmer of that sort. So there are so many things that are left out that cannot be translated. Yoga, I just want to pick up again on who do you think your essential audience is? And, I, and if any, of, any of you, feel free to answer, and you too, Rodan. But who is the audience that your soul is speaking to, what really matters to you? Is it about um, writing in Dutch and, and, or writing in English or writing in French? And, uh, yeah. But the language is the music. <laughs> because you don't need to translate it to another language. It's the highest uh, language is the music. But then we go to another uh, language. We need to say, I need coffee or something. You cannot say it in a piano or a violin. Then I think the languages were give you feeling that you must be a human, not belong to your village or to your flag or your country. I was born in the very south of Iraq, in the desert. I just was reading religion uh, books. 
because I am born in Najaf, religious city. And in Baghdad, when somebody want to be a teacher, they sent him six months to some village. After six months, he's allowed to work in Baghdad. It's the very beautiful rules. And the teacher, he said to me, why you are reading all these books? You're very young. You don't need to know God now, but when you grow up, I said, what I must know? I said, take this book. It was a book, uh, it was in, 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 in a man very thin, he have a sword and very old horse. And I said, who's this? He said, Don Quixote. It is in Spanish book, they translated to Arabic. Oh, it was the more beautiful moment in my life. Because Don Quixote, exactly me, he want to change the world, but he don't want to kill somebody, to hurt somebody. He's a dreamer. I thought, this book translated from Spanish is better than all the book in my village. And I thought, oh, I want to learn Spanish. Then I began to read Lorca. The teacher, he began to bring me books. He said, but don't say how you get these books. I will bring you every month when I go to my family. Then I read uh, Lorca, Echminez, uh, Pablo Neruda. I read Mendoza, Marquez. And I thought, oh, they are, they made the Arabic language different, totally different. Same you bring Arabic woman and you bring her European clothes. It's different, it's the same person. I thought I will leave my language, not because I don't like my language, but I want to try another thing. Same you try another food, another clothes, another car, another I don't know what. I said, why I don't change my language? In that time, I decided to use European language. Why? Because in uh, Arabic language, we had no freedom about 2,000 years. The Arabic language is scare. No one ever used it as he want. We, they use Arabic language or as an economic want, or as a religion, or as a politic. But the European writers, they are so free, not all of them, but the And I thought I will learn uh, Russian, because the, uh, when I read the Russian literature in the 19th century, it was amazing. And when I came to Holland, I said, okay, I will learn Dutch. And I, uh, I, now I am writing in Dutch, and I feel I am myself more than in Arabic. Why? In Arabic, I don't need to think to say something. It's come without me, my words. If you say, how are you in Arabic, I will say, good. If you say, who had it in Dutch, I will think, oh, not good. Because Dutch language is very honest. You must be exactly, you must be clear, and you must be very nearby yourself when you speak the Dutch language. Do you think with that pause, you can actually tell a more truthful answer. Yeah, not that means you that don't means that you are lying in the Arabic, but in Dutch more nearby yourself. For example, I want to say the day is nice in Ubud. In Arabic, I would say it like that. 
I traveled 18 hours in flying. We delayed in Madora, and then we fly it again. And the cheers in the airplane was small, and the hotel was not good. The day today is very great. This is in Arabic. But in Dutch, you will say, it went the 7 October is a nice day in Ubud. <laughs> then after 20 years, when I read, 27 October was a nice day. But in Arabic, after 20 years, when I read in Arabic, I don't know what I mean. Is the airplane was not good, or the weather, or, yeah. You prefer the exactness to your phrase? I, I prefer, I don't like the word truth, because they use it always in the spirituality. I don't like spirituality. But the European languages, especially, they have the truth. They are not scared, never scared of somebody. And when they are scared, they don't need to be refugees. They bike to another country and they live there. They are not, they are the, the, the gentlemen of the world, and they are never scared of the government or king. They make joke about the king in Holland all the day. And that is, I like, the language is free. This is my experience. Do you want to hear some poems or we, or you hear? Did you have something to add to that yoga before we move on to Jamie? Oh, Jamie, I'll ask you a question. You're disconnected in a way from your uh, language of your grandparents. Oh yeah, my eye, I've got a lazy eye, so it looks like I'm looking out there. I wanna talk about um, getting your point across within your family and then more so how, how that impacted your writing of your first novel. Yeah, um, I was finding what you were saying really interesting about like the confines of languages even um, when there's fluency and um, about religion as well because a lot of my um, knowledge of Cantonese, so Cantonese is my first language, um, though I was born in Australia, um, and it was a language that I've sort of gradually detached from a bit more. Um, but I find the confines of a language because of the context really interesting. Um, Cantonese, I guess, for me, was something that was spoken at home between me and my parents and my grandparents. But then also, like, the, the strange thing about that is that um, the only other time that we would speak Cantonese growing up would be in church, in a Christian church. So um, our church was, like, sort of very um, Cantonese, English, and Mandarin but um, the majority were Cantonese. And so I find it interesting to associate my knowledge and what I know now of Cantonese to be associated with either very like um, religious language, um, usually prayers as well, and also, I guess, uh, what you would say to your family at home. So everyone always knows sort of the, the profanities in Cantonese. There's like a whole Wikipedia page of profanities in Hong Kong Cantonese because there's a lot of slang. Um, but I never knew any of them because the only time I would sort of speak fluent and proper structured Cantonese was with my papa, my grandma. And so it's interesting when, um, when I read my passage, you'll see that a lot of what I know is what um, is associated with food, asking for something, um, praising someone, being called cute or, you know, um, very childlike language, which I find really interesting because I still take a lot of ownership over the language, though there are a lot more people fluent 
than myself. It's still very personal, I think. It's rooted in the past, that language. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to read. I would love to hear some, and then we might go all the way through and do some readings. Okay, sweet. I will find the page. Um, this part is called Early Dinner Out. Dad has asked Auntie Linda to take me out to Yamcha down the road because it's going to smell bad in the apartment today. When Auntie Linda asks why it'll smell, Dad is a raging brown couch and barks at her that she isn't there, Ma, so stop judging him. That she is a sad piece of shit. Auntie Linda holds my hand down the street. She hums, Guelo. We eat. Sweet floppy egg custard tarts, a seal mai and ta seal bao fantasy. Creamy mango pudding topped with milk cream on a plate and arranged as a circle of little lumps like a flower nearly. We've found gold, a fluffy cake for the cloud tasters. Seal mai, ham so gold. Brown dumpling with a juicy surprise. Tofu with sticky syrup, delectable. Jin dou, chicken feet, suck the toes off. Stir fried radish cake or loba gold a deep-fried pumpkin and egg yolk ball. Ham so got a greasy football. A cloth-white table and stains from little pork ribs make blotches. Some people on the next table have bottles of beer. Undrunk tea, even though yamchad means drink tea. It's loud in here, but the loudness of people is coming from nowhere because when I look around, it looks like nobody's mouths are open at all. A woman in a tuxedo keeps probing us to try delicious deep-fried fish worms. Auntie Linda asks me how school is going. I tell her I'm in a band. She asks me what I play. I say, did you know that the voice is a wind instrument? She raises her eyebrows and says, you're a singer? She starts to sing a church hymn in a Chinese opera voice. Nobody looks at her and I don't say anything, just dig my teeth into lotus seed bun. This is a whatever space, and we order everything from the trolleys until the bill is more than $100, and our stomachs are color collages. Yum cha like buffets. For tuxedo dressed yezyes and old chens picking teeth leftovers and swallowing. In the afternoon, the grayness of the sky and the sun sours the weather, and me and Auntie Linda go to the shopping mall. She buys herself some turnips on sale. She buys a new pack of pastels and tells me that she's fulfilling her dream of becoming a textile designer, that she's going to quit her job at the IT place. She tells me about her friend that's asking her to design something for her to sew. Auntie Linda buys the expensive pack. Quality always sells. Thanks. There's so much about family. I wanna know, as a, from a writer's perspective, was it, your intention behind writing this book? Was it to pay homage to the past or was it to expose who you are as a multi-dimensional person? I mean... I think not at all. It was, it was a bit unconscious. Every book that I had written or every sort of thing that I wanted to be a book written before this, um, when I was in high school and stuff, I just, I never included anyone with ethnicity or language. For me, language is very synonymous with the way you are perceived as a racialized body. For me, like, um, the way you speak a language and if you have close association to a language, I saw as it being like you're an easier target for racism or assumptions or stereotypes placed on you. So. 
My experience in Australia is probably very different to how language is perceived overseas, but for me it was very much like um, an unconscious effort that I, I think the detachment of my book and the um, structure in the sense where I, I, I sort of deconstructed the structure of a normal uh, English novel helped me to come to that point where I was able to include Cantonese because I could understand that because I'm not, I didn't feel fully able to take ownership of English or take ownership of Cantonese. Ownership is a bad word, but I think that's how I felt at the time that you needed to own a language. Yoga, you're nodding. Do you feel like you're able to straddle languages within Australia in the context of Australia? Um, yes, and I think um, when I think about languages, I, um, I want to associate them with a larger subject, which is the society behind that language, the experience behind that language, how it relates to that. Because uh, for me, to a large extent, writing is an act of resistance, an act of um, uh, showing something that was hidden, uh, often by uh, systems and structures of power. So uh, it, 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 it is convenient for me to write in English, for instance, uh, as someone with an African experience, I have uh, um, a larger uh, set of concepts and ideas to incorporate and write about and, and uh, I can claim that I'm not affected by the, uh, the experiences in Africa. But uh, that is convenient for me because we often respond to, uh, to an audience that gives us recognition. So, uh, 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 because we, when we write, we write with a sense of an imagined community. We don't write for nothing. We write for people who listen to us who would read our books. So uh, when, I thought, when I think about people who are going to read my work, uh, uh, that, that makes a, a significant difference in how I write. When I think that I am writing for an audience in the West, uh, it, my writing becomes different from what I would have written for an African or for an Ethiopian audience. My first book, Yetararush Chuhat, for example, is a reflection about uh, places, places like the, the title means the cry of mountains. Uh, so it talks about the magnificent uh, uh, or the representation of mountains in Ethiopia's consciousness as places of victory, of triumph, and how that shedding of tears of mountains represented the way in which uh, traditional cultures has been eroded by uh, imposed uh, systems such as the requirement to study in English and so on. Uh, so when I write in that context, I have a cultural reference. I have a society that would resonate, that would respond to it. But writing in English from that position necessarily also means that a question of showing the violence of these dominant narratives and languages, what they do to, to the non-African, the non-Western world. Uh, that means trying to show how, for example, the English language becomes violent for the lives and identities of so many people. Because without knowing the experience of Africans, for example, you can read a bunch of books and write about Africa, and you can become a historian. Uh, a person who is now regarded as the father of modern African history is uh, Hiob Ludolf, a German guy who has never been to Ethiopia, who asked a, a, an Ethiopian priest, 
about this to the country and wrote the first book in a European language about Ethiopia and he's regarded the father of Ethiopian history. Whereas Ethiopians were writing books before even the English knew the alphabet. So, you know, bringing concepts, ideas to the consciousness of the West is often regarded as knowledge production, as writing. And I find that to be very problematic and very oppressive because people's own narratives, own knowledges are not regarded as texts and knowledges. They are just regarded as data, as information. So my, my, my writing is political, and that is deliberate. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that there is a, a possibility of enjoying uh, the freedom that I have around uh, the spaces where I am as an academic, but I, I wanted to take that space uh, responsibly as an opportunity for me to try to speak about the experience of another place with awareness, with the recognition that my attempt to represent that place could even become complicit and problematic. So in that sense, I think, uh, you know, uh, 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 trying to uh, speak about a certain language as oppressive or as liberating is problematic because uh, it basically speaks to our own taste, not necessarily to the taste and the, the aspiration and the experience of the people about whom we are, refer we are speaking or about whom we are writing. So in that sense, my writing is very political and that is deliberate. And, and I try to uh, kind of uh, sharpen that, that, that uh, creatively as much as possible. Rodan, your writing is also political. I wondered if, and uh, you've uh, written in a colonizer's language. I wonder if by writing in that language, you feel that uh, it's your act of resistance and you've taken power from it and you've controlled I, that power. I don't think I write about politics. I just uh, use the language just for to be not alone. And I like writing to clean my head from myself. I don't need psychologic or best friends or good dog or no, or a big house. I need just to write. People think, oh, you are very relaxed and very happy. I said, yes, I'm writing all my problems. I made very nice poems about. I don't want to change the world uh, with my books and I think Every book, I published 18 books. Even a lot of books are died after a few months. No one knows them. They go as uh, old papers. I don't care about it. And, uh, and I think, you know, I like the sentence in the Bible, in the beginning was the word. It's really truth because can you imagine sometimes I want to call somebody to tell this. I want to... Ah, you get crazy. No, take pen and paper and write it and you'll feel good. This is wonderful. Perhaps it's inadvertently political talking and, and about you the can, You can ask me if you like that, why you published books, why you don't keep it in your home. Yeah. Because I'm also lazy. I don't like to work eight hours to get my money. I just write in my home and the publisher gave me a lot of money to spend six months in Spain. It's, yes, why we don't tell the truth? I don't believe in my books, but I believe in the readers. They read it and they pay the money for me. It is like that. This is but completely I will read you one poem. I will read you a poem. Yes. I love my life. I felt last time I am in love, but with my life. I don't see my life this, this. No, my life is in person. She's always young and nice, 
I made this poem about her, my life. The more beautiful partner. When she left me, I am nothing. I am nothing. They put me in the earth and it's nothing. This uh, poem. Leven kom met mij samen wonen. Deel met mij niet alleen de woonkamer en de slaapkamer, maar ook mijn hart en elke seconde. Leven samen, jij en ik. Ik heb je lief, ik zal niet jaloers zijn als je ook met een ander gaat. Leven, kom met mij samen wonen. Ik de muur en jij het thuis voor altijd. And now she will read it in English. You can applaud for me if you want. No, for me. For her. <clears throat> Life, come live with me. Share with me not only the living room and the bedroom, but also my heart and every second. Life, together you and I, I adore you. I won't be jealous if you see someone else too. Life, come live with me. Me, the walls, you, the home forever. I am the way out. I enter the universe. Thank you very much. I forgot that I was moderating then. <laughs> I was about to grab another one. You want you... another one? Yes, uh, you can read this in uh, English. I don't read it in Dutch. I will choose three or four. She will read it in English. Shall we do that? I like funny poems. I don't like seri very serious. This is what? Farm. Farmer. No potato ever tried to kill itself. No cucumber ever said, I am not a cucumber. I am a banana. No tomato will ever say, I don't want to go in the soup. I want to go in the salad. No demented pepper. That's why I'm a farmer. Okay. Applause for Tara. <laughs> and, and, the, the, and I will just do again, and then we will give the time. I love the mother, the, the female. We are coming from the female. I'm really very feministic Arabic man. Uh, and this about what means to be a mother. Harbor. Harbor. My mother was the harbor, my father a boat. My mother was the boat, my father a sail. My mother was the sail, my father a wind. My mother was the wind, my father a horizon. The harbor, the boat, the sail, the wind, the journey, and the horizon, where my mother and my father and I were travelers. The one from the outside world to her inside, the other from her inside out into the world. And the last one, when you travel in Holland from the north to the south, east, west, you just see coups, no humans. And grasses and coos, and this is about nice, beautiful dream. I dreamt I was a cow. In the dream, I put on lipstick and looked in the mirror, seeing for the first time how beautiful I was. Shame that all this beauty is only for the bull, whispered the mirror. I came out of the stall. <laughs> <laughs> ate the ground for hours. 
and when night fell, I gave whole milk instead of skim tears. Thank you very much. I think when the people laughing for the language, it's more beautiful crying, I think. You do play with language beautifully, and I think actually, um, sorry, I didn't mean to throw that. Jamie, you, I think you have a playfulness with your language too. Was it natural or was it, was it relating to music? I, I, I want to know where that comes from. There's, and maybe perhaps read a, a passage. There's this way you play with um, Chinese uh, sort of symbology and mythology to... You kind of break the reader's mind in a way. There's a section where there's you know, a flooding of sesame oil. I wonder if you could talk about that and maybe read mm. part of it. I think definitely the, the sense of rhythm comes from Cantonese for me, for sure. Um, my understanding of how Cantonese wasn't the, the dominant language in my society that understanding sort of broke me in a sense, in that I suddenly realized there are such strange rhythms to Cantonese. But Cantonese is also a language that has been influenced by colonialism in Hong Kong as well. Um, so loan words um, will be like, there'll be words like um, strawberry is and then chocolate is chocolate. So it's not sort of, it's not the way that Japanese is sort of has loan words for English um, things, but they're oh, like a oh, bus is basi, so it's kind of like um, those loan words really interested me because I'm like, I can't describe the way that it would have translated, and there have been some studies about like the nasal quality of Cantonese as well, so I think. Um, the nasal quality is really what I focused on in the rhythm of this book. So in a sense, even though I'm writing in English, there is a nasal quality to all the English because that's sort of my understanding of that threshold between English and Cantonese. So I guess it was unconscious in a way, but obviously a lot of my influences in the way I hear language, hear accents, are influenced by the way that I know Cantonese because even my, um, I have one grandmother, my mama on my dad's side, she has an English accent, though she's like 100% Chinese, she came from colonial Hong Kong, and my other grandma is um, very Cantonese, like the most Cantonese you can get, and those two influences sort of facing each other actively, I didn't really question when I was younger, but I guess the way that those two ways of speaking Cantonese and those two ways of speaking English um, and how they interacted influenced the way that I think about music and the way that I think about writing because I'm also a musician. Um, I think my mom used to say, to encourage me to speak Cantonese, Cantonese is like singing. It's using the same um, part of your muscle. She said, if you stop speaking it, you're going to like, lose the muscle that you used to sing. So I, I used to speak it for that purpose as well. So there is like... Yeah. The, mu the music of the language comes across so strongly. Mm. Can you, could you please delight us a little bit with that, the musicality? I, wa I just wanted to read about the sesame oil because it really is the mo some of the most innovative. It's, it's at the beginning. It's, it's the sesame oil in the gutters in Chinatown. 
in, while you're looking for it, actually, yoga, would you like to read a, a piece in, it doesn't have to be translated in uh, your native language? Yes, uh, I actually write very funny poems as well, uh, but not in English. I'm, I'm I, I, uh, hearing some of the beautiful poems um, make me sound like I'm like uh, an, an, an angry black man. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, okay. Well, I also write poems. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is a poem about uh, the beauty of freedom. Kaksum lalibela and dihum kagunder, Katariket in toh, lawen lasker, Gojuen sesara, yakmen sultaratar. Yahun kafuna fas gavton diafer sats, kadadan sedef setarich sad desats, kostwa salota, dimilikin norre, reftin filegaz, ret biamreng zari, mochat ahularasi, peserrahat gojos rion tatri, katomeneva jeng, wayogizio meshe, tarikin kamat fat gojoin afrishe, lukurwe salota, kostwa besbishe. It's, um, it's, it's a poem about uh, the intricacy between. Um, loving one's freedom, one's culture, versus the desire to break norms and be, be uh, um, with a world that is, that is not clear. And I think I just, I just want to, um, to highlight on some of the points that, that, um, that makes me also interested in this panel on, 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 and uh, uh, in some of the topics about writing as uh, a kind of multilingual writer or uh, this notion of the possibility of creating uh, diverse uh, literature using a single language. And I think, I think that it is uh, uh, interesting to uh, uh, really, uh, for me, reflect on a wo the world we are living in, where, uh, uh, for example, uh, these days in particular, I'm reluctant to open social media because I don't want to hear and see some of these uh, graphic or disturbing images that come from some parts of Africa. So as members of society who are uh, always punctured, affected by these events going on, I find it difficult to ignore uh, the world that we're living in. And especially when you are a black person and someone uh, whose story is appears to be known and obvious by anyone without even asking you anything about, about your experience. I think it is really important to emphasize on the existence of multiple experiences and places. And some of those places are dark places and they have to be told as well and there has to be audience for them. So uh, I, while I appreciate the importance of writing art for art, that is basically what I used to do when I was in Ethiopia. Uh, but I also appreciate the importance of political writing because, you know, when I, when I was a young person uh, growing up in rural Ethiopia, there were so many shortcomings, but I never understood that life as poverty. I learned poverty through education, that the world has a script to tell me that the life, the life you live in this place is poverty. And poverty is understood, is translated, is operationalized in a language and an understanding that was not mine, that was not my community. 
So going to a system of learning, education, was a form of violence for me, although it opened opportunity for me as an individual. But for the society I come from, it was not really a place where I can get the best out of that world from education and teach them because the education system was not based on their experience. It was not about their literature. It was not about them to farm better, to live better. It was imitated from a Western, Western countries. Even the medium of instruction teaching was English. So many people do not know this. And the significant, the major problem of African, uh, the African world, the African children is linguistic. That Africans are not allowed to study and learn using their own languages. The, the implication of that is that the knowledge that is produced about Africans for Africans is not really based on the African experience, which is why I think a lot of us, when we write and reflect on uh, places that are not places we, where we enjoy life or we come from, it is really important to see whose experience is being represented by our writings and in particular by those who do not understand and speak the English language. So that's, that's where I come from, although I, I really appreciate the beauty of expressing uh, one's taste through language. Do you think there's been a dominant story that coming out of the African continent that has overshadowed other countries' stories? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 you, if you look at even Ethiopia, where I come from as, as an example, this is a country that produced intellectual output. It's more than one million books were written in Ethiopia's Giz language. But a lot of these books have been uh, expropriated, collected by Western institutions, like libraries and museums, places where you go to and look at manuscripts and admire them. But these books are textbooks of indigenous schools in Ethiopia. But because you know, our worldview is so much wired by Western representations of the other, this notion that it is good for them to forget their history and learn about us, this notion that these are people who really be educated and improved through our way, this is actual epistemic violence, actual problem where they, people can, these people cannot improve their experiences. Now there is this movement toward this decolonization, decolonial movements where people are coming out and speaking about the violence of colonialism than any time before. And there are three, for example, three fundamental damages that have happened over the African continent by many things, including writing in the English language. One of which is, for example, the loss of the African sense of time. A sense where Africans start to come through their contact with Western powers, they are told, are educated, and are made to internalize a sense that the present that they live is the past of the Europeans. We are as if living in the medieval period of Europe. And that means everything that is written about Africa as a place of violence and so on becomes something that reflects the shadow, the past of European societies. That's Africans losing the present, their sense of time. And also Africans losing their sense of the future by saying that, well, Africans will become in the future by writing like Europeans, by studying English, by uh, learning Western knowledges, the future of Africans will become the present of Europeans. Which means the past is lost, and also the future is lost because the future will become like the present of the, the others. 
And also there is a, sense, a loss of a sense of knowledge where indigenous knowledges are not valued because they don't really work for existing global empire that works for profit that is marketable and commodified. So anything that is in Africa, in order to be valued, has to be commodified. Natural resources must be converted into a foreign currency for Africans to register growth or development or progress. It's not enough that they have a good culture, they rise, they have fun, they have to convert everything that they have into Western narratives, Western currencies, and so on. That is a, sense of, a loss of a sense of knowledge. And there is also, in the end, there is also a sense of the loss of identity, where in Africa you find now conflicts across the continent, and there's a conflict going on in Ethiopia. And that conflict is not a conflict that reflects the culture of Ethiopians. It's a conflict that was created, invented by elites that created a sense of grievance out of history in the past. That means people started to appropriate identities that are invented for them by others. So writing in English in a way in this context is not really writing for an international audience because a large part of the world's population do not read or understand English. It's actually communicating with elites in different parts of the world. So English literature, and you can consider this, this festival as an international festival, actually is a, a literature that speaks to people who have access to this imperial language, people who are elites in particular countries, not people who have experiences that cannot be represented by the, the English language. It's also the colonized language of many nations, forced upon uh, many indigenous peoples. Um, I want to talk about, go back to Jamie with your playfulness of your, of, of your writing again and that musicality. And I wonder if how you're speaking to, if, if, if in your writing you're speaking to one grandmother or another I keep thinking about that difference in tonality. Yeah, I think what she said was amazing, by the way. I, I, um, you just put it in such a perfect light. I think it's, yeah, it's a really interesting one because my, um, my sort of more British grandmother, um, she imposes the performative nature of her English onto us um, as her grandchildren. And so, for me, in a sense, that paired with the violence of needing to go to speech pathology or like um, being trained out of my Cantonese, um, associating Cantonese with um, the East-West sort of Orientalist view and like conforming to that, um, needing to, if I wanted to live a certain experience in Australia, um, informed how I read as well. So the way that I read in high school when I had that deep sort of um, internal racism, which is strangely paired with language and strangely because of the violence of language, um, as you keep mentioning, which is, yeah. Um, has it, it, I think it definitely relates to the way that I've written. I, I read a lot of English and American literature growing up and I took um, speech and drama lessons from the age of seven to 
17. So that's 10 years with a private tutor teaching me English literature and teaching me how to pronounce words and teaching me how to read. And I do a lot of Oscar Wilde and all that kind of stuff. And that definitely influenced the way that I, I came to grow up and then realize that um, even within English and in French, um, you would you would go to deconstruct that language, and then I learned about decolonization through through language and use of English. And because I'm predominantly English speaker, that really finally clicked in my head that I was like, the way to grapple with my experience between English and Cantonese is really to take that approach of decolonization of language using structures and how we see books. And when we see a book and we see it in something like Japanese or Chinese, we're like, oh, that's strange. Why is it like, why is it like this? Why do we read it backwards? Why are books so associated with, um, I guess, the elite or the, the, the colonial elite? Um, so yeah, that, that definitely clicked with me as soon as I learned that People had done it before, perhaps for different reasons, but people were doing it now. And um, I think that's when I sort of realized what I was, how I could possibly write as someone who is, um, yeah, yeah, has the, the multicultural sort of element, yeah. Those Straddling those two languages, yeah. Can we have some of that music? Can we hear Yeah, so I think the chapter you were, you were thinking of, um, it wasn't the Bossa Nova one, was it? Was it, the, it wasn't the Bossa Nova one. It was at the very beginning, that one. Sesame. The sesame one. <laughs> okay, fancy chi Chinatown in the big city. The gutters bulge with sesame oil here. A curb exploding from the lion dance drumming and the peak of a Chinese opera playing on a stereo from the herbal shop. An old Shanghainese man whips his bongos in front of the Japanese Photoshop Bukira. Wipes his hands on greasy newspaper, mumbles about rain that's coming. It's an overripe swallow, a tart drunkenness, a type of porridge and century-old eggs for breakfast, a slow shuffle with wooliness, and Cantonese spoken on the south side, the language is made of elastic. In all the apartments of this fat building, the televisions don't turn off. Playing anime or east coast, a rhythm of words against flax walls, and the orange juice is always pulpy on the bench, the kind of Chinatown like late morning reruns on school holidays. Thank you. Rojan, you, like Jamie, you've traversed so many languages, multiple languages, traveling over the world to seek refuge. Um, can you please talk about your novel? And then you can read some poems if you like. But I really would like to share this great book with you. I, uh I spent a lot, seven and a half years from when I left Iraq, ran away from Iraq, until I arrived to Holland. And then I spent nine and a half years in the refugees camp in Holland. And, uh, and I ran away to Norway, they sent me back to Holland, to Sweden, they sent me back to Holland to Denmark sent me back to Holland, and to Germany, and they sent me back to Holland, because you are allowed to ask asylum in one country. And always they discover me, and they send me back. And this was your question about that, about my book you want to know, maybe? Yeah, and uh, I didn't want to talk about my refugees' experience, because it's very negative. 
it make Europe very bad and this war. And I met a man a few years ago, by chance, he's in the festival. His name is Adrian van Dis. Adrian van Dis is the biggest writer in Belgium and in uh, Holland. He's the most famous person also. He said to me, can you tell me about your experience in the refugees camp all these years? I said, I don't want to talk about it. He keeping asking me and I said, you know, I, maybe I will tell you once. He said, can you send me every month a story? I said, yes. He said, promise me. I said, I promise you. He followed me three and a half years. I sent him every month a story. And the story is this book. It's about my life in the refugees camp between 550 people. And uh, it's, by the way, about the language. We have 550 people from all the world. Some people speak in few Engli English words, some few Arabish. We made on our language. We just understand it in that building. And when you say something, you hear Russian word or Arabic or Turkish. Or that was really very funny in the refugees camp. If somebody interesting in the book, I will give information to read it. Maybe you, you want to hear the Arabic language. I know a lot of Arabic uh, texts before. I will read you little text thousands, 2,000 years ago from the Quran, very spiritual, and little texts, old poem and modern poem. They are very little. And one text is when Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, he didn't have a power, no one followed him, he was in the mountain alone, and God, he sent him a text, is the more beautiful in Arabic, I will read it. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. والضحى والليل إذا سجى ما ودعك ربك وما قلى وللآخرة خين لك من الأولى. If you understand Arabic, the words are amazing. This is 2,000 years ago. And we have 1,000 years ago, very famous poet. And I read a little bit from him. ليالي بعد الضاعنين شكول طوال وليل العاشقين طويل يبن لي البدر الذي لا أريده ويخفين بدرا ما إليه سبيل. And the modern Arabic, do have, we have a time for little? Okay. الحلم الحلم عربت الذهبية الصلبة تحطمت وتهدم شوق عرباتها كالغجر. Thank you. We've just got five minutes for questions, actually. So if anyone's got a question, there's a mic going around. If you just put your hand up here. Thank you. A question to Mr. Yirga. So using language means using culture of certain people, right? So um, you, if I'm not mistaken, you say that you, when you write English in English, you use a um, Western uh, perspective. But however, uh, however, English is widely spoken also in Southeast Asia. 
for instance, in Singapore, Malaysia, and also Philippines. And my question is, do you put that into consideration that because Eastern and Western has a quite different gap perspective? Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, you see, when I, when I, when I talk about uh, English, um, I, I also considered about the existence of borders, not just physical borders, but uh, borders based on language, borders based on identity, borders uh, based on perspective. So you are right, there are people who speak in English in many parts of the world, but if you closely examine the types of people who speak in English in a non-English speaking countries, usually the people are uh, those who have access to Western education, those who are able to go to uh, universities and able to study English, and so on. Even in places like Ethiopia where the government created a system based on English, although 99% of the population do not understand and speak English, but the education system is in English. Now, even within that place, large parts of the population still do not understand English texts. They don't read Shakespeare or they don't read uh, uh, the uh, fictions and books written in English because the language is not part of the culture. So what I'm looking at, what I'm trying to say is the English language has created a privileged class across the world. And sometimes even here, you know, where, where everything that is read, produced in English, doesn't mean that all uh, Balinese people would read it or understand it or would relate to it. That means it, even in places where people have exposure and direct access with tourists and so on, English it has, has created um, a kind of barrier, a kind of border between those who speak and those who don't speak. And the effect of imposing on people whose language, original language, not English, to speak in English is actually to effectively reduce them into the intelligence of children. That was a colonial policy in Africa. When colonialists came, they didn't want Africans to use their own language, so that they wanted them to study English, in English. And when you go and start, you start from vocabulary, even if you have your own language, literature, and so on, you start from studying the grammar, the vocabulary. In effect, your intellectual capacity at, 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 in, in terms of English is somehow diminished, and you hardly make it to the top within the English-speaking society to become viably you know, uh, successful and so on. So when we think about English, we think how it creates border demarcation between those who speak and those who don't, and those who have access to knowledge through English and those who can't. charities and NGOs in the way Oxfam Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion are trying to go around the world and do social good, but uh, to what extent can it take into account the lived experiences of people in the global south? So just a direct question really about the festival here in Urban, Urban, Urban Rights Festival that's going on for nearly 10 years, I believe. Um, what uh, would be your recommendations for how we could decolonize Urban Rights Festival? I think it's quite decolonized. I think, 
I, what's that, sorry? I'm an okay. indigenous okay. Australian. And I've been here three times. But we have many uh, translators here um, at the festival and many local Indonesian writers, also Balinese writers who have a different language to mainland Indonesia. I think it is one of, and I've been to many international festivals, and it's one of the most, uh, it feels decolonized to me. I mean, there is a presence of, of, of the Dutch language uh, uh, during, a, during the festival, but I think that has, the, the, the panels are arranged in a way where the Balinese are given voice to push up against those, those voices, those colonised voices. But yes, it's fascinating about environmental organisations and NGOs that are being decolonised. I like that. What about you guys? Um, I, think in, uh, I think that's a very good question. Uh, when we think about decolonization, uh, there are great things that we should continue to do so because for me, colonialism and colonization are different things. Colonization often involves the physical dominance of one group of people over others. That is colonization. Colonialism, the ism, shows the ideological internalization of dominant narratives that do not give access to indigenous worldviews, to indigenous cultures and experiences. So, you know, the level to which indigenous experiences, cultures, and identities are represented in one uh, space tells you the level to which there is that decolonization. And I think, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, this is my first time coming to this festival, I wouldn't say much about the festival, but in my understanding, if you go to uh, almost every uh, event that is undertaken using uh, uh, colonial languages, it is very hard to really bring the experience of people who are not represented there. That also means that it is our responsibility to recognize, it's, it's, to recognize the limitations that emerge because of the uh, absence of people whose experiences and languages are different from the language that you use in, play, in, in festivals, even in education systems like, like this. We say universities are colonized. We say um, uh, a lot of places that we go to that give access to us and give us recognition uh, based on our Western knowledge are colonial. So decolonization is very important, but there is also another danger in taking decolonization too far because sometimes there is a tendency of those of us who try to decolonize to become new colonizers by not allowing the ones who do not have access like us to lead the movement of decolonization. So decolonization is a resistance to allow people who are not here to come, to allow languages who are not spoken here to be spoken, who, to allow worldviews we are not familiar with to be expressed. So it is a movement towards epistemic humility. A humility that says that my knowledge is not enough, good enough to make me understand what the Balinese people are going through and so on. Uh, so I would think, I would recommend in my, in, my, in, in my own view, what I would say is that there are so many lessons that can be learned from the decolonial movement. And that also means 
the, the good things that uh, Tara mentioned in terms of bringing in different languages and worldviews, encouraging and giving that a voice. It's not to our taste that we should always work for. It is actually for the demand of justice in terms of language, linguistic, and epistemic uh, justices. So in that sense, it would be wonderful. You see, the problem with, with all of this, and, and why I'm repeating this is because it is quite easy to see the violence of one dominant force over the other, the violence of government. It's very difficult to see the violence of things like education. How, educa how can education be bad? When we say in Africa, education for all, everyone is just jumping and say, yes, education for all, education for all. But very few people ask it, who's education for all? In whose language are we making education for all? As a result of that, the education for all movement did not incorporate indigenous knowledge and indigenous education. So you, in Africa now, the right to education means the right to Western education, not the right to indigenous education. And that happens across the board. So it would be interesting to kind of take those critical insights and encourage uh, 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 the diversity of knowledge of, of uh, uh, languages by bringing actual people who have not just the skill of the language, but the experience of the life that is not here. Thank you, Yoga. And can we thank all of our panelists today? Jamie, Yoga, and Rodan. Their books are available. Jamie's are here. And uh, another round of applause, please. Thank you so much for coming. The sessions in Nega Museum. And all of the books from the speakers still on sale at Periplus at Rumakayu. It's closing soon, so if you hurry, you can still catch time. And thank you so much for the audiences who stand here, like from the first session to the last session.